one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. No one takes this honour upon himself. He must be called by God, just as Aaron was. So Christ also did not take upon himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered and, once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Sarah, thank you. Let me make sure this works. Lovely. Well, as James said, we're in a series uh, going through the book of uh, Hebrews, and uh, this evening we come to look at uh, this aspect of uh, the person and the work of uh, the Lord Jesus, his role as uh, high priest. But before we get into that, I want to ask the question, what does, um, or I want us to think about the question, what does God think about me? Uh, and indeed you, that's not that's a rhetorical question. What does God think about me? What do you think God thinks about you uh, moment by moment? And uh, it's an important question, isn't it? Because uh, our sense of our own standing before God, our sense of our own relationship with God, I take it profoundly affects our Christian life. It profoundly affects how we think and act and behave and uh, operate moment by moment. Uh, and I think it's easy to become unclear, unsure as to our sort of standing with God, our relationship with God um, uh, through the days and through the weeks in a way that actually can play out in spiritually quite harmful ways. And you see the confusion, um, which we've all experienced, I'm sure, in questions such as, such as these. You know, is, is there really nothing I can do to make God love me more or less? Interesting question, isn't it? Hopefully we'll, we'll touch on it. If Jesus has forgiven all my sin, should I ever feel guilt? If Jesus has forgiven all my sin, why do we confess every week at church? Am I closer to Jesus when I pray? Or flip it on its head, 
Am I further from Jesus when I've had a bad day? Hebrews, I hope, uh, will help us get a biblical and therefore a healthy understanding of where we stand with God and what that means for us in terms of the nature and the dynamic of the Christian life. And I want to focus on um, chapter 4, uh, just given the time we've got this evening. We will, we'll, we'll sort of we'll dip into chapter 5, but essentially we're going to spend our time in chapter 4, verses 14 to the end. And here they are. Um, Let me read them. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. These verses, I think, hold within them two of the most important and significant truths that we can know as Christians. If we're here this evening as Christians following the Lord Jesus Christ, then these are two of the most important truths. They're meant to be foundational to our Christian life. They are truths that explain and interpret our experience of the Christian life and our expression of the Christian life. They're truths that speak about how God views us moment by moment and how we relate to him. And uh, here they are. This is what these words, I think, from Hebrews tells us and elsewhere in the Scriptures too. We are at the same time, and that is key, both perfectly righteous and secure before God, and imperfect sinners in need of ongoing mercy and grace. We are at the same time, so it is not the case that on a good day we are slightly more perfectly righteous before God, uh, and uh, slightly less sinners, neither is it the case on a bad day that we are slightly more sinners and slightly less righteous with God. No, both true equally at the same time, both perfectly righteous and secure before God and imperfect sinners in need of ongoing mercy and grace. So what the Bible does, and these verses do specifically, is it wants to draw a distinction between our status before God which is objective and unchanging and secure, won for us by the Lord Jesus Christ, ours in him, our status before God, is to be distinguished with our walk with God, which is subjective and fluctuating and in need of constant support. If you like, it draws a distinction between our status As God's beloved children, because that's what we are in Christ, we've been adopted into God's family, we are God's beloved children, and if you like, the the distinction between that and our experiential state of being God's children. And if we lose one or two of these categories, if we highlight one to the detriment of the others, then we'll limp in our Christian life. It'll have a profound effect on us in some way spiritually, and we'll see some of that, I hope, as we go through. So how do these verses 
show us all this? Well, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you'll know the writer to the Hebrews trying to encourage uh, this probably uh, ex-Hebrew uh, congregation uh, to stick with Jesus and not to go back on him, to stick with Jesus because he is greater than all that has come before him, all the things in the Old Testament that have pointed to him, all the people that have pointed to him, uh, even the heavenly hosts, the angels, Jesus is greater than them. We've seen he's greater than Moses, the greatest of the Old Testament sort of characters in many ways. He's greater than the angels. And this evening, uh, in this part of the book, he is showing how it is that Jesus Jesus is greater than all the high priests who came before him uh, in uh, the Old Testament. You see that there in verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Now, to get a sense of what's going on here, you need to remember what it was that the high priest, uh, I mean, all the priests to some extent, but specifically the high priest did in the Old Testament. What, in a nutshell, was their role? And in a nutshell, their role was to represent the people before God and God before the people. Uh, They were an intermediary. Uh, When they came before God, they came on behalf of the people and represented the people, and then they spoke the words of God to the people. They represented God to the people. An example of that, a classic example of that, is that the high priest wore a garment when he went into the Holy of Holies uh, once a year on the Day of Atonement. And uh, on that garment, he had this sort of breastplate. And on that breastplate, there were 12 jewels embroidered on the uh, breastplate. It looks a little bit like that. And uh, on each of those jewels was engraved the name of one of the tribes of Israel. Okay? And so here it is from the book of Exodus. Whenever Aaron, he was, of course, the first great high priest, you can read about this back in Exodus, uh, enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece uh, breast of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. So it's very visual, isn't it? When he walked in, having made the sacrifices that allowed him to go into the holy place, the holy of holies, where the ark of the tabernacle was, where God symbolically dwelt, the most holy place, when he'd made the sacrifices for his own sin, chapter 5 touches on this because he was a sinner, as chapter 5 says, and for the sins of the people, he went into the most holy place and he literally, no, is it literally? Metaphorically, well, he brought the people of God with him on his breastplate. You can tell me afterwards if that's literally or... uh, Anyway, whatever it is, he brought the people of God with him on his breastplate. So he represented the people, and of course, not only did he bring them into God's presence, but of course, he brought them into God's presence spatially by going into the Holy of Holies with them on his uh, breast, but he also brought them, if you like, spiritually into God's presence because he'd made those sacrifices for himself and his own sin and for the sins of the people. So he represented them, and he reconciled uh, the people with God. And the writer to the Hebrews summarizes that. In verse 1 of chapter 5, every high priest is selected from among men and appointed to represent them in matters related to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now, do you see then the significance of the words of the writer of the Hebrews in in chapter 4? Jesus has done that in a much greater and significant and profound way. You see, we have a great high priest who has what? gone through a curtain 
in an earthly temple into a little room. No, we have a high priest who has gone through the heavens into the heavenly places of which the tabernacle was just a little illustration. He has gone into the very throne room of God. The high priest did it once a year and did it for a short period of time and then had to leave again because of sin and had to keep doing it because the blood of bulls and goats, as we learn, could never actually really deal with human sin and never actually dealt with his own sin. The high priest was a sinner. Jesus wasn't, and his sacrifice was sufficient to atone for the sins, to, to forgive the sins and reconcile people to God. So he, he went and he stayed Uh, The book of Hebrews, if you've been with us, puts it like this. He sat down. I mean, it would have been unthinkable for a high priest in the Old Testament to go into the Holy of Holies and then just, oh, I think I'll make myself at home and sit down. Jesus made himself at home because he is God's son. It is his home. Again, chapter 5. He sits as our representative and our reconciler forever. And of course, like the high priest in the Old Testament, he has gone in with his people's names engraved on his breast, as it were. He has brought his people, followers of the Lord Jesus, into the heavenly courts. And he's sat down at the right hand of the Father. Which means this, doesn't it? We are always in God's presence because Jesus is always in God's presence. So this verse speaks of our objective status. We are always in God's presence. There is no yo-yoing in and out of God's presence as our feelings yo-yo because it's not tied to our feelings. It's tied to Jesus, and he is there, and he has sat down. We're not objectively further from God on a bad day or when I feel far from God because Jesus has sat down. He doesn't move. I don't move through the sacrifice of himself, Jesus has perfectly reconciled me to the Father. He has paid the penalty for my sin. That means that I will never be asked to leave when I sin because the Father looks at the Son and sees that he has paid the penalty for it. Friends, it is so important to grasp this, the first of the two truths, isn't it? Because if we lose this, well, I'll come back to that in a minute. Let me say this, weekly confession then that we do as a church is not about, being, uh, it's not about asking to be allowed back into God's presence. Okay, we'll come to what it is in a minute. But it's not about being asked back into God's presence. In Jesus we are secure in his presence and we're there as beloved children since Jesus, our high priest, the Son of God, is, if you remember from a week or two ago, not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Now, if we lose sight of that, if we downplay that objective truth about us, that in Christ we are seated at the right hand of the Father, then our Christian life, I think, will tend to be joyless. In fact, it can end up being a fearful one, an anxious one, the call to obedience the call to live as the children of God that Christ has made us, 
which is what the writer of the Hebrews says in verse 10 of chapter 5, and we'll come to that in a minute. Uh, The call to live in a way that is fitting in God's presence, that call will be a threatening one if we lose sight of this truth, that we are by faith secure in the heavenly realms. We'll be prone to too great an introspection if we think that my place in the heavenly courts depends on how I'm doing spiritually. I'll be too, too introspective. How am I doing? How am I doing? What does God think of me, therefore? My conscience that rightly speaks of my sin will start to frighten me. Because I think, well, if, I'm, if, you know, if, 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 my, if my place in God's standing uh, in, is, is dependent on my, on, on my you know, righteousness, my own personal righteousness on my sin, then I'll be fearful every time it, it speaks to me of a sin. Every stumble, every sin will terrorize me. And so I'll end up either denying it, um, you know, cloaking sin, sort of actually not wanting to look, or I'll end up despairing seeing it all too clearly and then despairing, neither of which is spiritually healthy. For those of us who are fearful that our relationship with God is ever so fragile and it yo-yos up and down and it's built on my faithfulness rather than Jesus' faithfulness, the antidote is, as we've essentially said in every application um, sermon uh, in the book of Hebrews, because it just is the application to the book of Hebrews, uh, is is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Um, I love this phrase, you've heard me say it many times before, but I won't grow tired of saying it. I hope you don't grow tired of hearing it. Um, Robert Murray McChain, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. It's absolutely vital. For every look at yourself. Do, do look at yourself. He's not saying don't. Do, we do. Introspection does play a part in the Christian life, and we're coming up to the season of Lent, and we'll think about that. It doesn't play the chief part. For every ten look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. And a little bit later on, I think we're going to sing the song Before the Throne of God Above. And um, it has a wonderful, um, has a, well, all the verses are wonderful. This one uh, particularly makes the point. We're going to sing this to remind ourselves of this truth uh, as God's people. Uh, it goes like this. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. Here's the idea of the Old Testament image of being graven on him. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, or indeed sits, no tongue can bid me thence depart. No, no tongue. Not my tongue. Of, 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 the, the, the voice in my head that says, well, because you've done X or Y, because you've missed your quiet time, because you are, you know, you're out of God's presence for a while and you need to do something to get back in. No tongue of the world accusing tongue of the world that says, uh, you know, you did X or Y, you don't deserve to be. How can you be so sure of going to heaven when you die? Um, no, no, Satan, of course, which means accuser. Uh, his tongue can't bid me thence depart. No tongue could bid me thence depart because it's Christ's faithfulness that has won me a place in the heavenly realms. And so this, um, this lovely um, quote I can't remember, it's one of the Puritans, of course. Live much in the smiles of God, bask in his beams, feel his all-seeing eye settled on you in love and repose in his almighty arms. Yeah. That's what that truth allows us to do, particularly if we're, if we're very sensitive, have very sensitive consciences, or we, or we, or we overemphasize sort of the, the role of our, 
our faithfulness in our relationship with God. It's, it's significant, but it's not to be overemphasized. So in Christ, we are perfectly righteous. We're forgiven. We're family. But while we live physically here on earth, we remain, and here comes the other truth, at the same time, imperfect sinners, needing to constantly approach Jesus, our high priest, for mercy and grace. So at the same time as being always in God's presence, we are always in need of Jesus' ongoing mercy and grace. So the writer reminds us in verse 10 of chapter 5 that as God's children in God's presence, we are commanded to start living as God's children in God's presence. There it is, verse 10 of chapter 5. He, Jesus, became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Yes, when we come to Jesus, we come to him as Savior and Lord. By faith, he makes us God's children, and therefore the command is to live as the children I've made you. The, the call to obedience goes hand in hand. Unlike Jesus, we are not perfect children. We fail to live as members of God's heavenly family, and so we need his ongoing mercy and grace, and that's the point of um, that's the point of verses 15 and 16 of chapter 4, isn't it? We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Do you see how the two verses beautifully balance each other out? No, sorry, they don't balance each other out. They, they balance each other. They don't can't, sorry, yes, they do balance each other out. They don't cancel each other out. They balance each other. They're held in perfect, um, uh, held perfectly together. Uh, we, we, we know ourselves to be fully forgiven, and yet we require ongoing mercy. We know ourselves to be living under God's grace, yet we need ongoing grace. We know that we're always in God's presence, and yet we're called to what? Constantly draw near. That's the dynamic. And that, of course, is the dynamic of family life, isn't it? I mean, it's not, that's not odd when you think about it. That is how relationships work. Think about a family. When a child does something deliberately naughty, a good parent, a loving parent, doesn't stop loving them, doesn't say, you're no longer my son, you're no longer my daughter. There's the door, as it were. Their status as beloved children remains, but it has profound relational, experiential, subjective results, doesn't it? The child um, should feel a sense of guilt, uh, may well start to distance themselves from their parents, not want to catch the parent's eye, spend a little bit more time in the bedroom than they ordinarily would, or out of, out of uh, earshot, out of eyeshot, there's a, there's a coolness in the house where once there wasn't, perhaps. The parent feels, they still love them as their son, love them as their daughter, but there's, there's grief, there's disappointment, there's frustration. And how is that r relational nature restored? Well, the child needs to say sorry and allow itself to receive the loving forgiveness of the parent and the encouragement 
to change. The child needs to receive mercy and grace to change. So it is when we sin. Sin has relational consequences. It has a subjective, experiential consequence. We feel far from God. We don't want to catch his eye, as it were. Our Father doesn't stop loving us, comes the very first question we had up there. No, he doesn't stop loving us when we sin, but is he displeased, frustrated, grieved? Well, yes, he is. How do we restore that mutual joy? Well, it's through confession. Not to get back into God's house. Uh, Not to get back into God's love. We never uh, left the house. We never lost the love. But to, to stop hiding in his presence, to experientially, as it were, draw, draw near to him again as we turn towards him and apologize, to, to hear those words of forgiveness being re-spoken and reapplied to that particular sin. It was paid for at the cross, yes, but now I've, now I've experienced it, now I've done it in time. I, I hear those words of forgiveness that were won for me back then, spoken to me now, because we live in time, don't we? And so those words are spoken, and relationally things, as it were, improve, and I feel the joy of that sin being forgiven Tim Keller puts it like this. I find it so helpful. The purpose of repentance is to repeatedly tap into the joy of our union with Christ. It's when we repent that we remember what a joyful thing it is that Jesus Christ is the perfect Savior who has perfectly forgiven my sin, past, present, and future on the cross. I hear him speak those words to me now and experientially as it were, I, I'm closer to God, experientially, as it were. Do, you, do we see the, see the difference? See, see we hold them to? In fact, of course, do you see too how the first truth plays into and equips us for the second truth? Let me say what I mean. In other words, it is our secure status that empowers our admissions of failure, isn't it? That empowers our drawing near to hear those words of forgiveness when we have failed, isn't it? It is a child who is secure in the love of their parents who will then, and who know their parents are loving and gracious and merciful and ready to forgive, that child is the one who will be quick to apologize. That child will be the one uh, who you may actually find you know, apologizing more often uh, and from the heart because they're secure that they, they're constantly wanting to turn to seek out that, that sin, to turn to apologize and to seek grace to change. It is, it's, it, it's as we know ourselves to be secure that will deal with the fact that we recognize, too, that we are. It allows us to open our eyes to the fact that we're imperfect sinners in need of mercy and grace and turn to the Lord afresh and ask for it. So as um, weak sinners, we need to constantly approach Jesus for the application of his ongoing mercy, approaching confidently because he suffered the temptations that we do, so he's able to sympathize with us. 
you know, just like a parent with their child. A parent knows what it is to be a child. Jesus knows what it is to be human. And so he sympathizes. He will always mercifully apply the forgiveness that he won for us at the cross into that situation when we confess it before him. And that joy of sins forgiven, that joy of being a part of God's gracious family, well, that empowers our desire for greater obedience, to be increasingly renewed in the image of this family. I want to look like Jesus. It's such an amazing family where this grace abounds. And if that's our desire, it will never be frustrated because desire for obedience is always met by Jesus' power for obedience. Jesus suffered temptation like us, yet he never succumbed. So he can strengthen us. He can sympathize and give us mercy, and he can strengthen us and give us grace uh, to help us change and grow in our obedience. If we lose sight of the truth that we're imperfect sinners called to obedience, then we'll lose sight of our need for ongoing mercy and grace. And we'll seek to struggle in our own strength and we'll miss that, that great aspect of joy, uh, the joy of uh, knowing, um, uh, of coming for him who is eager to forgive sins and pour out his grace to strengthen us towards obedience. A healthy Christian life, then, is built on both those truths being equally true all the time. We are, in God's sight, perfectly righteous, secure, there before the throne in Christ as his beloved sons and his daughters, and at the same time, we are, uh, while we walk on this earth in these bodies, imperfect sinners in need of ongoing uh, mercy and grace. We have uh, a great uh, high priest uh, who has carried us into God's presence and has sat down. He sat down. So tied to him by faith, we live before the throne, perfectly righteous before him. Here is all our assurance and our joy and our hope and our peace as followers of Jesus. And here too is all our encouragement and empowering to admit our imperfect state, to admit our sin, to admit that we are weak and we are needy, to admit our struggles and our stumbles and our disobediences that displease our Father and damage us, to admit it and be empowered to approach Him for the ongoing application of His mercy and his grace. And encouraged and empowered by Jesus, we continue to depend on him as we battle to live in the light of and in step with our secure status as God's people, as God's children in God's presence. So let's fix our eyes on Jesus, our great high priest, and may God give us the grace so to do. Amen.